You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with two sides of the asset management coin, a substantial systematic trading shop in New York that manages money for institutions around the world and in Canada, as well as Canadian retail investors via an onshore product and someone known as a gatekeeper in Canada, who ensures that the products on his broker-dealer's shelf are fit for purpose. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is October 7th, and this is Alternative Thinking with James from CASA. And today we have uh, Stu Bohart from Fort LP and Roman Marguet from Richardson Wealth. Uh, we're going to start with self-introductions. We'll start with you, Roman. So I hold the title of, uh, I guess, uh, Head of Alternatives for now, Richardson Wealth, uh, as of this week. And that means that uh, I oversee the primary due diligence, uh, ongoing due diligence, and origination for alternative products in our IROC business, which is uh, recently renamed Richardson Wealth, and as well as the multifamily office we now created about five years ago. So that encompasses everything from venture capital, private equity, private credit, uh, private real estate, and hedge funds. Uh, which as a whole uh, represents roughly around $3.5 billion in, in AUM. Wow, you run the gamut. You got everything there, Roman. No wonder you're so busy. <laughs> so what? Um, tell me about, maybe we'll start with the least liquid, perhaps, or the venture capital side. What are you doing there? Because that's something that's typically not done in the uh, in the IROC channel, but I'm interested to hear, hear your approach. Yeah, for sure. We've, uh, I guess, for the past decade, and definitely built a niche uh, through our IROC business and now even in our multifamily office business, focusing on on alternatives. The foray, as as you mentioned, for, you know, Canadian taxable clients uh, in venture capital has been really over the last five, six years, access to product is uh, far more difficult uh, than from the, the family office side. And you know, that means that our focus was initially on on Canadian shops in the BC space. Uh, thankfully, over the last three years, uh, Canada has definitely seen a exponential growth in, in VC, uh, specifically tech VC. So mm-hmm. that's been excellent for our clients. And uh, it's true. We, we've accommodated the, the issue that's often present uh, and stops many of our competitors from from accessing venture capital, which is, you know, both the the fact that they tend to run long dated vintages and on top of that, um, aren't set up uh, as easily. uh, So that means that, you know, they don't normally clear electronically. They're not on platforms like FundServe. Uh, and you know that that's they, they also use capital calls, uh, all of which are, are mm-hmm. not normally something that uh, that the IROC firms want to deal with. 
for us, it was really based on client demand. Our, our client base is uh, in large part accredited and therefore uh, naturally once many of our clients had had exposure to you know, hedge funds and private real estate and private debt, uh, clearly they started noticing that uh, they, they lack exposure in, in other asset classes and, and venture capital has been something that uh, that we've actively been growing um, for definitely the past three years, and, and I would say even through COVID, there's been uh, just been a fair amount of interest of interest in venture capital. Uh, a lot of it, once again, driven from from the tech side uh, and the opportunities that uh, that we're able to access uh, on the tech side through some some VC firms. That's cool. And then the entire the other side of the spectrum. Uh... Um, I'd say the new tech is liquid alts, which is, you know, like we've worked on for six years and finally came out officially, um, you know, the first day of last year. And so if it's been around for like 18 months uh, to 24 months, depending on how you, how you pull, put, put, put the pin in, uh, cause some people had funds out before the official date. Um, but you know, we get the, li- we make the list every month and it's like 10.4, 10.6 billion now. And when I started, um, with another shop back in 2011, the Canadian hedge fund industry was 30 billion. And then when I left us seven years later, it was still 30 billion and now it's 40. So um, have you guys seen that in your shop too? Have people really started to get liquid alts into their client portfolios? Is it as easy as a mutual fund as I remember when I was a broker back in the nineties? Uh, or is it, is it still a tougher conversation that you know, IAs have to have with their, their clients? I, I think we're a bit of an exception uh, once again, because we've had this this fairly long-standing niche in in the alternative hedge fund space, uh, so f- for us, the the fact that you could now get access to, uh, you know, in, so, in some cases, obviously more liquidity, but uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a hedge fund type product in a prospectus format hasn't been as much of an advantage as in some other firms, and that's mostly because we we haven't. Uh, historically put the restrictions on the OM hedge fund products that other firms had. So uh, uh, the, the exposure that, that we've received in the liquid alt space has, has really been for, for the firms that, that launched a product where it, it, in prospectus form, it made more sense than an OM form, um, mm-hmm. w- which is definitely not the same landscape as, as some of our competitors, which obviously allow the use of liquid alts uh, far more broadly than the use of OM funds. Um, so there are definitely advantages. And obviously one, one of the main ones is uh, for, for certain teams that would run mandates where they, they may have some clients that uh, aren't accredited. Obviously then the use of a, of a liquid alt is, is a valuable possibility. Uh, but definitely the, the, the uptick that we've seen is uh, it, is not a very material one because the advantage mm-hmm. of having it in prospectus form hasn't been as material with our firm than it has with others. Very good. Oh, you're ahead of the curve. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Cause I remember I looked at one back in 98 and I was like, oh, I'll never be, I'll never be able to buy this thing here. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good to hear it's in portfolios and you, and like you say, you've, you've already had them in OM form for quite a while. Um, which is kind of where Stu comes in. So. I think the Canadian, uh, the Canadian investment management business has been ahead of the curve 
for a long, long time. I find it interesting from my seat in the U.S. when we look at Canadian investors, both institutional and and retail, uh, how advanced they are in embracing new approaches and and being more aggressive in the prudent taking of of risk. And you see that in venture capital and private equity and and in uh, alternatives, including liquid alternatives. And I find that interesting um, compared to the U.S., where there's there's still significant restrictions on many of these asset classes for uh, high net worth investors, retail investors, just depending on the different level of, uh, of assets and accreditation. Uh, because uh, investors are allowed to go out and buy a single stock, maybe a hotel or an airline, just two categories that wouldn't have worked very well this year. And, and yet there's no restriction on that type of risk taking. And there is restriction on exposure to venture, uh, private equity, some real estate funds and, and liquid alts. And when you look at the, the purpose of diversification in the portfolio, you quickly see that all these components are a, an important part of long-term compounding. And the Canadians have their systems and their regulatory structures have been well ahead of most of the world, Australia is another place that seems to be. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, people should have that kind of diversity in their portfolios. Yeah, I remember when I went to Australia a few years ago and, and I talked with a lawyer and, and I, she couldn't understand the concept of a hedge fund as we have it over here. And she's like, what? All of our mutual fund managers can short and use leverage as much as they like. There's not a hedge fund here. Uh, it's like, what? Anybody can buy this? So uh, they didn't go that far in the, in the legislation, but. Uh, uh, but let's hear more about you, Stu. So tell me about Fort, and you've been there for a couple of years, uh, but you've been um, active in the industry for decades. So let's let's hear about your background and and what you guys are doing at Fort. Obviously, in the it's toward that that liquid side of the sphere with the systematic trading and such. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for thanks for having me on the on the call, and uh, and I look forward to your your questions and discussing mm-hmm. the space. I've been at Ford Investment Management Partnership for a little over two years. The firm's 26 years old. So one of the longer uh, life hedge funds uh, founded uh, by two World Bank discretionary traders who took their experience in discretionary investing and adopted it to a systematic environment that has worked well for us. We run 6 billion US uh, primarily in systematic macro, uh, largely expressed through uh, liquid futures markets, global liquid futures markets, but we also run significant money in single stock equities. Uh, the systematic macro portion of our book is predominantly driven by price-based signals. Our equity business is predominantly driven by balance sheet signals, what some would call quantumental. Mm-hmm. But our entire business is focused on highly liquid underlying markets and fully systematic uh, investing uh, protocols that allow us to adapt to different market conditions and to uh, take part in both rising and, and falling asset classes. Very cool. My history is all investment management. As you mentioned, I've been in the business a long time. Time goes by quickly. 
uh, are now focused on helping uh, Fort build the business and manage their business and involved in every aspect of, of the business. And, and uh, we're very excited to put more effort and more time into the Canadian market where we think uh, there are real opportunities for the type of investing that we pursue. Right on. That's great. Hey, Roman, um, are you seeing investors and IAs getting used to the uh, the systematic trading? Because uh, I've seen it for, I think it first came on the scene, like in or CTAs in the 2000s or so. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if that's, if it's, if it's caught on a lot or, or if it's more, a matter of uh, do people see it as quantity? They just see it as equity, equity investing, or fixed income investing. How do how do how do people? Uh, what kind of lens do they use to view a, a fund like Forts? Well, that, that's uh, that's the million dollar question at this point. Uh, when when our relationship started with Forts, uh, you know, we, we were very excited and, and still are, by the way, because um, they were basically first movers uh, as a direct a product that high net worth investors could have access to in Canada, uh, so not mm-hmm. sold through a third party, uh, and obviously, uh, you know, a, a institutional grade portfolio firm um, in the in this space, uh, which we completely lacked uh, as an offering to to our clients, uh, and therefore, uh, what we've noticed through, you know, I guess now it's been uh, it's been over two years. Uh, trying to incorporate uh, their diversified program into uh, various portfolios is is obviously, uh, and this is the case across many asset classes, that education is the key. And Mm. the more complex a product, uh, the the, the more education is required. And and to be fair, this this type of fund is is almost as complex as as you can get. Uh, So... You know, without trying to get into you know all the reasons that that uh, create for for an advisor at, at a high level, it essentially means that uh, you know somebody who hasn't looked at, at this space and is trying to understand the process and the triggers and uh, you know whether or not they, they use stop losses and, and the benefits of not using them. Um, this this is this all falls back into uh, as you said, it's not something that was readily available uh it, it wasn't used widely in the high network space uh mm-hmm. so slowly uh, we're finally seeing people that that understand the benefits of of divergent return streams uh, understand the benefits of uh, of a fir- uh, of a fund like like ports diversified program that has a track record of, of negative correlation with indices and and how building a position in in that type of strategy will will obviously uh, help a broader portfolio. Uh, so, you know, th- this also always ends up falling back on, on portfolio construction theory and, and, and how do I properly diversify, uh, uh, you know, properly reading correlations, properly reading everything that, that relates to not having a, a portfolio that systematically goes to one uh, in the type of scenario we saw in March. Uh, and, and sticking to that plan. Uh, so you know, mm. we've, had a, we've had a few teams that uh, have understood this and and have implemented it. But clearly, uh, what we've always felt uh, since uh, our relationship started with Fort that it was important to to keep getting that those ideas in, in front of our uh, 
in front of our teams nationwide and, and for those teams to relay that information to, to their end client. Uh, and clearly it hasn't been a, a, a necessarily an, an easy road because the complexity of the product means that uh, the, you know, the, the time it takes to, to get somebody to the end result is, uh, is not as quick as, uh, as a very simple strategy, uh, like most mutual funds, for example. Uh, but but obviously we're. I often point out that I I think uh, I think clients see the word systematic and quantitative and they have a a visceral reaction to those <laughs> words. It's true. Yeah, maybe yeah. stemming from their bad their bad experience in math class in yeah, yeah. university or high school. Uh, but when you when you boil it down, what we do is it's really very straightforward. If you look at our portfolio, you see various long and short positions uh, in highly liquid underlyings, and the the process of assembling those positions is, of course, a little more complex. But I don't think it's any more complex than what a stock picker does in assembling a portfolio of equities and thinking about how those equities correlate to each other and how they'll perform under certain environments. After all, every investment manager is, to some extent, uh, systematic in the sense that they're trying to follow rigorous process that's demonstrably effective. Uh, And we do that um, like a religion. looking at process, looking at whether it's effective and produces the results, whether it's repeatable, and particularly for Fort, whether we can make it adaptive so that the process is, in essence, learning from recent history and adjusting to markets and taking into account what's just happened and how it might be similar to events in the past. But this notion of quantitative always being complex is more veneer than a, a reality. Mm-hmm. A good equity stock picker goes through a very specific process to pick their stocks. And it usually starts with screening markets and screening markets for certain variables. And right there, they're in the quantitative process. So I think as the world becomes more complex, more markets come online, there's more securities, just not possible for a single person to prudently take risk without employing quantitative models and screening and, and process. And, and that's what we do. We, we use process, we use machine learning to adjust the process, and we come out with a set of long and short positions in various asset classes, which in the fundamental space, you might, um, you might inquire of by saying, well, what do you like and not like here? Uh, we go through the same thing and come up with our, our positions. But it does take a longer lead time uh, to help people understand in the big world how it is we have positions in currencies and in various equity indices and in various uh, interest rate um, contracts and why we have those. No, I, yeah, I completely agree. And, and it's also, uh, you know, something that obviously in, in, in the material that you put out, you, you do quite well. It's highlighting the exposures that you're getting, the markets that you're trading, 
and bringing that to, to something that everyone should be able to understand, including the end client. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what we've also tried to do is, is bring the focus back to that, uh, what it is you are buying, uh, what, what exposures you are getting and, and, and what makes, uh, you know, in this case, uh, the Ford Fund specifically uh, unique and a good addition for a portfolio and, and not getting lost in the weeds about, uh, you know, how does this trigger work, uh, you know, with this quant, uh, which which to be fair, I can't explain and, and somebody shouldn't be trying to explain to their end client. Um, I, I totally agree that most of it is, is more of a perceived complexity than, than, a, uh, than, a, than a, an actual one when, when you look at how you are supposed to implement this into a portfolio. Yeah, because it's like if you have a VC position, then you, um, you know, you, you, if they say, hey, what's this? You're not going to explain everything going on in the company that exactly. this guy's investing yeah. in. It's like, hey, they do robotics and we don't know the price, except in your case, you know the price every day. Uh, you don't have you don't have everything smooth nicely. But uh, so how do you uh, Roman mentioned negative correlation and you, there's a lot of versions of this. Of course, negative negative one correlation can actually give returns. Although some people think it won't, but the math works. Uh, then there's up market, down market capture, which is probably more important, uh, I think. Uh, uh, but how uh, how are you guys uh, negatively correlated? How how does that bear itself out in the returns? Uh, and then I guess this is against the the S and P five, like the equity markets. Um, maybe if there's enough you have uh, correlations handy for yeah. Our goal is to be uncorrelated to equity mm-hmm. markets, uh, not negatively. Correlated and uncorrelated means uh, exactly that. Uh, there are periods of correlation and periods of negative correlation uh, to the markets, but that it's a stream of re- returns that is uh, independent of those other returns. And and our history shows that characteristic. And it's it is one of our goals as we embrace new strategies and as we modify current strategies through a very robust research process to preserve those key elements of being systematic in highly liquid markets and uncorrelated to um, broad equity indices. And the simple reason for that is people have exposure to broad equity indices. And Mm -hmm. our product is designed to make a meaningful contribution to a diversified portfolio, both in terms of augmenting the risk profile of that portfolio and, of course, adding to the returns of the portfolio over time. Uh, so the, you know, the actual numbers that come out show lack of correlation uh, over a period of time, and that is indeed uh, one of our primary objectives. Cool. How about you, Roman, on the client side? Uh, do they get correlation, or is it just like as long as they don't lose money when everything else is down? Like how, how is that taken on, the, on that side, and, and then how does, like, does the Ford fit into that? Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a very good question. Uh, this is something that you know we've been I've been with uh, Richardson Wealth for for five years, and it's at the forefront of almost every conversation that we put together. And when we're looking at a portfolio, whether it's helping a team uh, put one together or, or the portfolios that, that we manage, uh, pretty much on a discretionary basis uh, for various families. And I think there are more and more people every week in, in our world that, uh, that understand the benefit of this and not simply adding, you know, a, another uh, highly 
performing fund in the top decile in a in a you know in a bull market, which was often the case for many people. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, just layering on uh, funds that basically had a correlation of one, uh, and then all went down the same way uh, in, in the March type scenario. Um, now the, the the trick there is also that I can tell you for for clients where we had implemented, you know, market neutral strategies, for example, uh, or low vol strategies uh, for, you know, the, the previous five years uh, prior to COVID, uh, many of them would ask on a quarterly basis, uh, well, why is it that I own this? It's, uh, it's giving me, uh, <laughs> yeah. three, four percent. And I, I, I have a spider ETF that gave me 30 uh, and hopefully, uh, uh, that all came to fruition once again in uh, in, in March. Uh, you know, the, the fact is the, the strategies that, specifically on you know the, the I took market neutral as the example that there are market neutral that did exactly what they were supposed to do uh, and provided a, a an, an excellent ballast uh, for portfolio in March, uh, had positive returns in March and April and. Uh, and everybody understood why why it is that they own that in, in the broader portfolio. So uh, it, it always seems easy at first. Uh, it's the hardest thing to get clients to stick with in bull markets. Uh, and, you know, you get uh, endless amounts of thanks when you make sure to have them keep those strategies uh, when we go through a, a March type scenario. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it once again it, it often relates back to to education and, and trying to stick to a plan and not wavering from that plan because we you know we suddenly have a you know a, a month or a quarter that that doesn't look uh, as good as as some other funds. And that's where what we're talking about the portfolio construction and the types of things you put into the portfolio really matter because if you can construct a portfolio that has less probability of the big drawdown, you're far, far ahead in your long-term goals of compounding. It is very hard to make up for a shock to portfolio that drops its net asset value by 30 or 40%. It's really just a gigantic hole to dig out of. But through proper portfolio construction, you may well be able to assemble something where your expectation is you're not as exposed to that sort of risk uh, and you still have the compounding uh, objectives in sight for your longer-term goals. Uh, when we went through March, we had to think about these risk attributes really around um, three different characteristics. One, has the tail risk changed? That is, is the probability of big downside or big upside dramatically changed? That, that can change how you take positions. Uh, two, what's the overall level of risk in the markets? Uh, certainly someone holding uh, uh, one S&P unit in March experienced something very different from someone holding one S&P unit in January in terms of volatility and risk. And then three, we have to look at liquidity. Liquidity changes over time, and we run a highly liquid portfolio. When we offer liquidity to our clients, we mean it. And clients can come in and they can get their money and they can get their money uh, at the NEVs that that they expect. So uh, we look at all three of those things uh, and 
uh, and our systems adjust for them. Uh, our systems are also constantly adjusting just for the passage of time. So in an event like March, uh, it will take a little bit of time for our systems to learn from what has just happened uh, and become in effect wiser as we move forward. Uh, and those, those really present themselves of opportunities for us to expand how we implement a systematic macro strategy across these different underlyings around the globe. No, and I completely agree with you, Stu. And what we found actually through March, uh, the fact is on a, on a valuation or performance basis, uh, the, the large majority, and I'm talking 95% plus, basically performed like we expected. Uh, you know, within the expected, uh, I guess, width of uh, or bandwidth uh, of our expectations. But the the one parameter of risk that you touched on that people have been ignoring definitely, uh, and this is quite specific to the Canadian high net worth space, was liquidity. Um, the fact is we, we have a, a unique asset class, or well, not a unique, in our private credit asset class in Canada for, for many years, uh, we're talking now a few decades, uh, there are products that have been marketed uh, as monthly liquid when inherently uh, they are not. And, and this liquidity mismatch, because we didn't have an, a, a credit crisis like in the United States in 2008, was, was never highlighted in 2008. However, it was highlighted through mostly net outflows uh, and not yet a credit crisis in, in March. Uh, so for us, that was you know, the, the biggest surprise for some clients who had ignored this extremely important risk variable uh, and, and always assumed that liquidity was there because it was there in good markets. Uh, and it just mm -hmm. took one bad month. For, for people to realize that uh, something they, for some reason, thought was liquid, uh, it, it definitely is not. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, created, you know, for, for in, specifically in the, in the private credit asset class, many funds to gate because simply of a structural liquidity mismatch, which could have been completely avoided. And, and in turn, that also puts uh, a spotlight on strategies that, that are highly liquid. Uh, run by you know reputable managers who have always uh, been able to to do what they say they do and keep a a book that is extremely liquid. Uh, that that has now become a topic of discussion with many clients because the you, you know there is something to be said about the uh, uh, the liquidity or illiquidity premium depending on how you refer to it uh, and. and you know, that risk cannot be overseen. And, and for us in, in the high net worth space in Canada, it was, it was easily the, the most highlighted problem from March. And, and sadly, also the, the most avoidable. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because liquidity is paramount in any portfolio we construct and, uh, and clearly cannot be ignored. Yeah, the other thing that uh, happens, like with most clients, is just risk is losing money, and you know they they're sometimes a spouse gets a statement, so like what the heck happened here? Um, so they just don't want to have that, that talk in like April, whenever the March statements come out. And it's also the client inertia. I found that when people have 
if they have a, a something else in their portfolio, then everything didn't go down because when everything goes down, you sell from fear because you're like, oh my god, I'm gonna lose everything. I gotta unload, 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 and stuff's daily liquid, no problem. You can do that, but you get a you get a price, but it, it's it's not good. And um, instead of selling for greed, which is if you have something that's not correlated or maybe negatively correlated in those downturns, then you can sell for greedy purposes, which are good, and buy something that has gone down because this other one hasn't or maybe has, maybe hasn't as much or has maybe gone up. So you uh, you kind of get off that roller coaster of feeling good, depending on where the where the TSX or the S&P is, and you start thinking more strategically of, okay, things happen. That's okay. I got some stuff here. It's not in cash because cash doesn't do anything. Um, you know, it's, it's not quite dry powder, but it is is something that's sitting to the side that that shouldn't go down as much or might actually even profit from from these types of things uh this uh you know con- the convexity ends up working for you uh one of the things i like to tell investors is that perspective is important and and we all lose perspective in a panic oh yeah and you you can engineer that perspective back into your life with a little discipline so so what do you see coming roman in the um like in the private market area, because you mentioned, well, maybe I'll do another one. We'll talk more about the MFO stuff that you're doing. But uh, where is the industry headed in Canada, and and uh, what areas do you think are gonna gonna shine? Whether it's not really looking too much at the markets, but more from from the investor preferences. You know, and that's the interesting thing. I think after you know six months, uh, what what we're definitely seeing is that we're back to the same discussion we were doing at the beginning of the year, which is, you know, how, how do we construct a portfolio uh, ba- based on the risk tolerance of this client, uh, you know, that can uh, withstand uh, not, not having drawdowns uh, such as the market, uh, provide income if those clients need income. Um, I think, you know, there's obviously some asset classes uh, that stuff is too pushed on there. You know, uh, anything from hospitality to, to retail, uh, aviation somewhat, uh, you know, we wouldn't be deploying money into a, uh, into an aviation private equity fund uh, at this point, nor a, nor a hospitality uh, play. Uh, but, you know, that just means that uh, in real estate, uh, in this case, it's it's been a refocus towards industrial and logistics. Um, but, but the weights of, of those assets hasn't, hasn't changed for, for the clients that use them. Um, for, for us, it, it'll be a continued push towards a, a properly structured portfolio. Uh, and that obviously means in, in many cases, having exposure to, you know, core positions in real estate, having exposures to the markets that uh, a strategy like Fort can provide uh, matching strategies that uh, that keep a low correlation when when we need them to, uh, and, and that's you know that's always been what what we've tried to do. And uh, COVID brought the discussion back to the fact that it's important to do this. Uh, mm-hmm. It also it, it did definitely expose some managers that that said they did certain things but clearly didn't. So, uh, you know, uh, whether it's from an OM hedge fund or, or a liquid alt, uh, we've definitely seen the ones that, uh, that did what they said they would, which, which often is, uh, is the major battle. Uh, so, so for us, uh, none of it has changed uh, our, 
portfolio construction theory and, and our team that, that advises both our, our, our IROC teams at, at Richardson Wealth and, and the multifamily office. Uh, we haven't had some, some massive strategic shift in, in, in how we plan to deploy assets over the next you know, six, 12, or three years. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's really working within a system uh, that, that prob- properly matches risk and reward. And how we used to any uh, six billion dollar fund now? Anything else on the horizon, or is it pretty much stick to the the systematic side for you? Side liquid markets globally, uh, we're active in single stock equities on the long and short side, and in and in global macro. And that is a that is a big world for us. Uh, we have a lot of capacity to spend most of our time thinking about how to improve what we do and. Uh, and we spend time looking at new strategies as markets develop. But what's unique about Ford is our adaptive process that allows us to systematically adjust to market conditions and uh, reweight things according to opportunity in a manner that uh, has allowed us to feel very good about what we can do for client portfolios over long periods of time. It's unusual to to be part of a 26-year-old hedge fund group, and it's it's unusual, mm-hmm. I think, because uh, most funds are not systematic. They're not based on IP. They're not based on the teamwork that allows uh, firms to survive for long periods of time with the kind of record we have. So uh, we look forward to markets that will change and to new events mm-hmm. and to what those new events mean to the world and that confidence that our approach in the systematic space is flexible, flexible and uh, adaptive and will allow us to continue to engage our clients in a productive manner. Well, I think you're going to get your wish because I remember J.P. Morgan back in whatever it was, the 1910s or 20s, he said the markets will continue to fluctuate. So they'll keep on doing that and give you a lot of opportunities. And uh, Roman and his, his, uh, the advisors there, a lot of uh, – you get a lot of opportunities to show that alternatives are doing something for people's portfolios, whether in the private side or the or the more liquid side, like uh, like you have there, Stu. So this has been great. Um, we'll have to get you guys on another podcast uh, again sometime soon, and we'll uh, we'll sign off for now. But uh, thanks again, you guys. Uh, um, hope you have a great day. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your time. You as well.